This is a conversation with David Wallen. Hi, David. Hello, Serge. So, or Serge, as the case may be. <laughs> as the case may be. <laughs> so, David, as uh, at this stage of your career and your life, um, uh, what's what's really of strong interest for you? What's yeah. moving you? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, there, I guess I guess the answer would be a number of things. I mean, and, and in a way, well, just to, to kind of lay it out very, very briefly, I, I think what's uh, most compelling to me of late is the whole matter of the psychology of the therapist mm -hmm. and uh, the impact of our own history, uh, our, our own attachment history in particular, you know, the history of our close relationships, the relationships that shaped us most fundamentally, um, the impact of those early relationships and subsequent relationships on, on who we are as people mm -hmm. and how, speaking for myself, who I am as a person affects my efforts to be of help to my patients. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's most what's most compelling to me, and um, you know I think we've touched upon this briefly previously, but uh, um, you know you, you might say another piece of that picture, the psychology of the therapist, uh, a piece of it is the the therapist's the way I put it is the therapist's stance toward experience, you know, or you might say the stance of the self toward experience. And uh, that's, it's both both a, a way that I think about um, what I bring to my work with my patients. It's also a way I think about my patients' Uh, strengths and vulnerabilities. And so when I say the stance of the self toward experience, I guess I'm thinking primarily about three possibilities. So you maybe, know, maybe, yeah. let, me, let me just uh, slow it down because it's very rich and there's okay. a lot in it. And um, in a way, I love that phrase, the stance of the self toward experience. And I want to first simply repeat it and invite people who are listening to us even to not necessarily try to understand it intellectually, but kind of get into the, the rhythm and the beauty or the images that it might evoke and mm. to have the curiosity of see the rest of this conversation unfolding as maybe giving it some dimension. And yes. then what we're doing in this experience, in this conversation is, is kind of meditating through your sharing some of your experience about yes. that concept of the sense of the self toward experience. Yes. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> I was feeling appreciative of your saying, you know, let's kind of slow it down and also You know, the idea that maybe rather than trying to grasp these matters just intellectually, mm -hmm. that, I don't know, that we also try to, in a sense, embody yeah. these ideas as, as you and I speak. Mm -hmm. And so I, I heard, I heard what you were saying in a way as an invitation to be mindful. Yeah. Or an invitation to be present. Mm -hmm. 
an invitation to be in the moment with you as you know as we as we share a half hour or so of, mm-hmm. of our time together. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. Mm. Um, and so, and yeah. So, so in a way, this exchange and then this sharing, um, we are in some way practicing the stance of the self toward that shared experience we're having, whatever that's that right. means. But you know, in some way, we're doing part of that. Yes, that's exactly right, and especially the mindful piece. So, you know, for me, just I mean, this gets a, a little theoretical, but I find it a helpful way to think. I think we can have a stance toward experience which is one of what I call embeddedness. Mm-hmm. And that's a stance in which we're kind of on autopilot. Uh, we're, uh, you might say, believing everything we think and feel. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not um, taking a step back from experience in order to try to make sense of it, which is what we do when we're in a reflective as opposed to a stance of embeddedness, a reflective stance toward experience. Mm-hmm. We're taking a step back, we're trying to understand it. You know, what's mm-hmm. the context? How, what, what does it mean? How does it add up? Uh, why might I be experiencing this moment, this relationship in the particular way that I'm experiencing it? That's a reflective stance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then there is a mindful stance, which I think is... I suspect you know a mindful stance is one in which we're present mm-hmm. deliberately. Mm-hmm. We're present on purpose, and we're trying to be aware of what what is our experience in the present moment. We're mm-hmm. just we're in that experience as fully as we can be. And um, for me, all three of those stances—a stance of embeddedness, a reflective, or as it's called in the attachment literature, a mentalizing stance, where we try to make sense of experience in terms of underlying mental states, like what we believe or what we feel—all um, three of those stances, and the stance of embeddedness, a reflective or mentalizing stance, and a mindful stance—they all have a place. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, you know, we when we're when we're making love or listening to music or making music or getting out of the way of an onrushing truck, a reflective stance, a mindful stance, that might not be exactly what's called for. You know, you just want to be in the experience and, and do what, what's called for. Um, but, but I think a lot of the trouble that you or I or the people we're trying to help or the people we relate to can get into, I think a lot of the trouble comes up when they are you might say, stuck in a stance of embeddedness. Mm-hmm. And they're believing everything that they think and feel, and they can't take a step back from it, and they can't try to make sense of it. And in a way, perhaps, they can't even be entirely present for the experience because the past is so is so gripping, and what they believe, what goes on inside, you know, the, the lens through which they take in what comes in in the way of experience is so is so fixed. Um, I, I guess I guess what I'm saying is that for all of us, being embedded in experience can at times be problematic, and it's a real resource to be able to step outside of our experience for a moment to try to make sense of it, or to deliberately try to simply be present for our experience, in which case you might say the 
past is subjectively speaking kind of sheared away and the future subjectively speaking is kind of sheared away and we're just you know right here right now i think all three of those experiences can be fine in their place and um and flexibility mm-hmm, seems mm-hmm. to me is a big is a big part of what i'm trying to cultivate in myself and in the people who come to me for help so david uh, what i find very wonderful in there uh is uh one is you're not saying there is one thing that's good and others that are bad and there's a time and a place for it and you're talking about having that flexibility and that flow of finding yeah. something that's appropriate yeah and yeah. another part is there's something very visual about uh you're using the word embeddedness mm. um that embedded is say you know the journalists who were embedded in army during the Iraq war and things of That's that nature you disappear in it yes. and uh you're swallowed by it and you lose your perspective because right. you're all surrounded by it and That's right. uh the in contrast to that the mentalizing and the mindfulness are a way to actually not just be swallowed by it and there's going to be a difference between the mentalizing and the mindfulness and maybe we can come back a little more to it but yeah. the first part is really that sense of not being swallowed there's more than just being in the experience having said as you did that sometimes you do want to be swallowed in the experience that's right that's that's exactly right um you know i was just thinking that part of the problem with embeddedness if you will is that we lose a sense of ourselves as initiators, creators of experience, agents, people mm-hmm. who make things happen. If you're embedded in experience, it's as if experience is happening to you. Mhm. You when you take a step back from experience in order to try to make sense of it, you're taking a hand in shaping your own experience it, it it widens it seems to me widens the scope for a certain kind of mental freedom mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and i think actually by a different route i think mindfulness too expands the scope of mental freedom it it creates mental space mm-hmm. uh and i think i think whether one chooses to reflect or chooses to try and be present one is making a choice about how one is going to respond to one's experience mm-hmm. uh a deliberate choice you know i'm going to try to make sense of this experience or i'm going to really try to be present for this experience there's right. there's a choice there there's a decision about how we're going in a sense not just to you know it's a little cliche but not just to react reflexively to our experience but to deliberately choose in one way or another to shape our stance toward our experience mm-hmm, mm-hmm. either in the direction of greater understanding we're trying to make sense of it or in the great in the direction of greater presence trying to really uh be right here right now for our experience yeah yeah so so i want to reflect that you know part of the invitation of the conversation was explore 
the stance of the self toward experience, and we're right in the middle of it. And That's right. So uh, what you pointed out is the difference embedded. We're actually not in a position of taking a stance because we're carried by events. Yes. That's know, right. We're in, and uh, and the mentalizing and the mindfulness are actually we are taking a stance. And there is a difference in both cases, and to try and maybe get some kind of a, a visual or uh, embodied analogy to it, the, the mentalizing part is a little bit like uh, in a battle, the general is on a hill and watching the armies on the plane that are fighting, and mm. has that overview, and from that mm. place is able to make decisions, because he sees the situation as a whole, and yeah. he's able to see from afar and decide. Yeah. And maybe the mindfulness is the part where instead of in a way having that overview from the outside, the bird's eye view, uh, yeah. is a sense of actually getting a sense of it. So which is different from being carried in it powerless, but maybe uh, having a sense of oneself being fully alive in the experience That's and the right. sense of the resonance in the self of what the experience right. is. So does that, yes. yeah. Yeah, you seem to be quite fond of these martial metaphors. <laughs> but, um, you know, actually taking taking a step back from yeah. it, like I was feeling in some ways embedded in our conversation. Mm -hmm. And um, and so, and then I caught myself and decided well, I wanted to take a step back from the, you know, the the immediate reality of our conversation, which I'm enjoying, mm -hmm. uh, and and taking a step back, I had a sense like, well, I want to do some talking now about something a little bit different. I want to do some talking about that whole matter of the therapist's attachment history, the therapist's attachment patterning, because, you know, I, I wrote a book, uh, uh, I guess it came out in 2007, called Attachment in Psychotherapy. And so... Um, you know, as the author of that book, I, I have to say something about attachment. I mean, I'm very, very, very persuaded that it's in the context of uh, our formative attachment relationships that we become, first start to become who we are, and that in the context of our atta new attachment relationships in psychotherapy or perhaps marriage, uh, that in these uh, profoundly important relational context, that's where we have the potential to change. Um, but, you know, what I, what, what I find really compelling is, and, and many other people do obviously as well, is the, you might say, the analogy between what we attempt to provide as good parents on the one hand and as good therapists mm -hmm. on the other. Um, I, I think there's a certain kind of, uh, there's a lot of overlap. I mean, both of the both the relationship of a parent and a child, the relationship of a therapist, and these are both relationships whose purpose largely is to foster development, mm -hmm. is to make healthy development possible. You know, in childhood we want to make it possible for the first time. In therapy, we want to make possible, you might say, the resumption of healthy mm -hmm. development, and. Um, seems to me that it, it is a relationship of attachment uh, where the therapist is a kind of 
like the parent to the child. The therapist is a kind of stronger and or wiser other to whom the uh, the patient turns hopefully for an experience that will be reparative or healing, you know, in some way an improvement upon the initial relationships that left us, you know, with certain strengths, of course, but but also certain certain vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that when you pay attention to that, like when I pay attention to that analogy between what we provide as good parents, what we try to provide as good parents, and what we try to provide as good therapists, when I pay attention to that analogy, a major part of what I see is the following: just as the parent's own attachment history has been shown, and the parent's relationship to his or her attachment history has been shown to be incredibly powerful as an influence upon the psychology of the developing child, it seems to me in very much the same way the the history of the therapist and the therapist's relationship to, uh, to her or his own developmental history, uh, her or his own attachment history, that's an extraordinarily powerful influence on the therapist's ability to create a developmentally facilitated relationship. You know, it's like, in a nutshell, the research shows that secure parents tend to raise secure kids. Insecure parents raise insecure kids. Traumatized parents typically re-traumatize their kids. And I think much the same thing is true in psychotherapy. In other words, the, the therapist's security, insecurity, trauma is going to be manifest in one way or another, recognized or unrecognized, as an influence on how that therapist relates to to the patient. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess I'll just say one more thing, yeah. which is that what seems really key there is that just as... You know, if you think of yourself as a parent, you know, you might have all sorts of criticisms of your own parents' parenting, but as a parent, you can often find yourself, you know, with subsequent regret, perhaps, kind of channeling your own parents. In other words, you do as a parent a lot of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily choose to do. Mm-hmm. Um but you do it. And I think the same thing is true of our conduct as psychotherapists. We relate to our patients, it seems to me, much of the time, kind of on autopilot. We're just doing our thing mm-hmm. as therapists. And sometimes that's quite constructive, but sometimes what we're doing is a function of our own history, our reactions to our history, our own psychological needs, and sometimes that's not just unfolding, as I say, automatically, but to the detriment of the patient. It's an interference in the therapist's own uh, efforts to be of help to patients. And I'm, I guess I'm suggesting that that stuff is going to happen. It's going to unfold sort of automatically. And then the question is, can the therapist... you might say adopt something other than um, a stance of embeddedness as he or she does the work of therapy. You know, ideally, I guess what I would suggest is that we aim to cultivate 
the ability as we're working with our patients both to be present, to really notice, you know, to be right here right now and notice what are we actually doing with our patients. That's number one. And number two, to be able to adopt a stance of, of men, a kind of a mentalizing, a reflective stance so we can take a step back from our sense of what we're doing with our patients in order to, to try and make sense of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think those efforts to be mindful, to reflect on the experience that we are now able to be aware of, label, describe, that when we're able to take a step back on that experience and reflect on it to try to make sense of it, it gives us more freedom, number one, with regard to how we conduct ourselves. We're no longer on autopilot. And number two, because the relationship we co-create, I would say, with our patients is, you might say, a dynamic system you know, I'm influencing the patient who's influencing me, who's being influenced by me in turn and so forth. Um, when I become aware of what I'm doing with a patient, typically it bears a meaningful re, uh, relationship to what's going on in the patient. In other words, it's not just access, it's just not, it's not solely a function of who I am as a person. It's as if the parts of me that are manifest as I relate to the patient are activated by something that's going on in the patient. It's in the, it's in the chemistry between the two of us. And so when I become aware of what I'm doing, usually it's a, it opens a window on what might be going on, not only in my psychology, but also in the psychology of the patient and in the relationship that we're creating together. Yes. Yes, so so maybe I want to play it back a little bit in a slightly different mm-hmm. way to just check sure. that we're on the same wavelength. But Excellent. In a, in a way, um, you know, parenting is not just about having the good intentions about parenting or reading a parenting book. That's but, for sure. Uh, you're going to be, you know, influencing and creating and shaping your children based on what's going to come out from acting out what you have in yourself. And so knowing yourself and having that ability to both reflect on it and be mindful about it is going to make you make it possible for you to actually be a more effective parent. And in the exact same way, uh, as a therapist, if you just try to be a good therapist, you're actually going to be playing out a lot of your dynamics that you don't know. So you have to know yourself in both that mentalizing and mindful way in order to be able to uh, uh, influence the relationship, to make it one where it's possible to actually change. Yeah, that's that's very, very, I I would put it very much the same way. You know, that, that we don't, that we, that our parenting, it, it may be affected by what we read or what we hear about good parenting, but a lot of it just kind of unfolds and uh, plays itself out as a function of who we are as people and how we've been parented. And so if our parenting is going to change, we have to become aware of, of what we're doing as parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and try to make sense of it and try not to be so 
gripped by it. And I think very much the same thing is true of us as, as therapists, that uh, I mean, another angle on this is that as therapists, it, it seems to me that it's who we are that ultimately is decisive for the relationship's potential to be healing. Mm -hmm. It's not so much our theories or the techniques we've learned. It's it's who we are as as people. And, you know, who I am as a person is going to manifest both for better and for worse. And it seems to me the... To some extent, uh, the, you know, to a large extent, I think the key to my uh, using my history and my own psychology in the patient's interest, the key is to is to be mindful and to and to mentalize. In other words, the key is to to try to deliberately attempt to become aware of what I am doing, not mm -hmm. to be on a pilot, but to yeah. become aware of what I'm doing. And then to try and make sense of it in a fashion that informs me both about myself, but also usually about the patient. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, as I'm hearing you, actually, what feels, you know, like slowly coming back is in a sense, uh, you know, the obvious part of, but that feels very profound, that a parent is not a robot, that uh, if we're talking about attachment and we're talking about relationship, we're talking about human beings. That's and, right. And so that the parent is not a robot or a machine, but it's all the, the quality, the human qualities of the parent and also the ability of being not embedded, but both mentalizing and mindful uh, and have these human qualities that are going to affect the parenting. And yeah. in the very same way as a therapist... You know, we're not providing treatment, uh, but, you know, we are very much creating a, an experience. That's right. Where, That's right. We're present in that role of parent slash therapist. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Maybe I could give a, just a quick example right. to try to, I don't know, make this more, more vivid, more, mm -hmm. bring it to life a bit. Uh, I mean, this is an example that, Um, basically involves my relationship with a patient who I'd seen already for uh, probably for a couple of years and um, you know I'm sitting with the patient you know the hour's going on for five minutes or so and, and I'm I realize that I'm starting to feel <clears throat> a little drowsy and that you know that caught my attention and when it, when i when i tend to feel drowsy i always ask myself you know kind of like what what's going on around here mm -hmm. or or even more specifically sometimes i'll ask myself um you know what what is it that i might not want to experience uh why why might i be shutting down and so when I ask myself, as I'm sitting with this patient, why it might be that I was sh shutting down, I, I realized that it was because what I was doing with the patient was absolutely nothing. 
In other, in other words, I was in my in my mind what I was doing as I kind of asked myself, what am what am I doing? I mean, this is this in a way is the mindful piece mm-hmm. to try to get present. You know, when I was shutting down, when I was getting drowsy, I was not present. Mm-hmm. But as but as soon as I asked myself, what is it that I don't want to experience here? I started to wake up a little bit. And when I asked myself, what what am I actually doing here? I mean, that's a little bit like what I do when I meditate. It's like, well, what are, you know, I'm just paying attention. What's coming up? What am I doing? What's coming? I'm thinking, feeling, sensing a pain in my back. So I was doing something similar in the therapy. It's like, what am I doing? And again, what I realized, I was doing absolutely nothing. And it was sort of billed as I was making room for the patient to think his own thoughts and feel his own feelings. But then when I tried to reflect, and usually when when I reflect, I ask myself two questions. The first is, what might be the implicit meanings of what I'm doing? So what might it mean to me, what might it mean to the patient that I'm doing absolutely nothing, that I'm keeping my mouth shut? And then the second question is, what might be my motivations for doing what I'm doing? And so what what I realized as I asked myself, what what's the meaning of what I'm doing? I realized that beneath the surface meaning, which was just making room for the patient, was the fear that were I to say anything, the patient would experience it as an interruption, as a destructive, hurtful incursion on his experience, his thinking his own thoughts, his feeling his own feelings. Um, And I became aware that I was fearful that he would get angry at me. And then when I asked myself, what were my motivations, what might be my motivations for saying and doing nothing, for being so fearful of his uh, anger at me, what I realized, what I tuned into was just a kind of an abiding fear I have as a person, you know, generated no doubt largely in the context of my relationship with my kind of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde-ish mother. Um, You know, what what I was afraid of, I think, was seeing myself or being seen, as I was seen by my mother at times, as selfish, destructive, bad. And, And, you know, what's interesting is that for me... Going through that kind of process of getting present, noticing what I'm doing, trying to make sense of what I'm doing, checking out my motivations, you know, what's, what does my psychology have to do with, with all of this? Um, yeah, it, it, it often opens up a whole range of possible interventions. I mean, mm-hmm. it just, you know, you know, I mean, I, I mean, in this particular instance, what I chose to say to the patient was something like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're going to experience this as an interruption, but I, I feel like I'm caught on the horns of a dilemma. If I, I mean, how can I be helpful if I don't say anything? Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And, um, 
And I was enormously relieved when the patient said something like, um, you know, I, I, I know, I know where you're coming from because I can be, I can be quite prickly. And, you know, I've encountered a whole bunch of uh, shit and uh, misattunement. And, you know, so if you're not exactly on target, you know, I can feel really, I can feel really pissed off. He said, but you've got your dilemma. I've got my dilemma. And, and the way he put it, this is like his metaphor was, you know, if I come out of my room, because in his childhood, retreating to his room was safety. Mm-hmm. So he says, if I come out of my room... You know, my experience tells me I'm, I'm just going to bump into the three-headed monster, mm-hmm. which is his code for his very narcissistic father, his very seductive mother, his physically abusive older brother. Mm-hmm. And so I guess what I mean to illustrate here is that when the therapist starts to notice, gets off autopilot, gets mindful, pays attention to what's unfolding in the moment, what is the therapist actually doing, and then when the therapist reflects on what he or she is doing, it opens things up in a way that's not only important in terms of allowing the therapist more freedom so that the therapist can loosen the grip of his or her own history and his or her own psychology, but I think it also makes possible a kind of deepening of understanding of what's going on with the patient, and often a, dip, a deepening of connection mm-hmm. to the patient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, in this instance, what followed were, it basically opened up a, a whole new terrain, which had to do with the fact that my patient felt like he could be a member of the audience and listen to to my monologue, mm-hmm. or he could deliver a monologue, and I would be relegated to the status of audience member. But what he felt like he had such a difficult time doing was, actually, it was what he came to call mind jazz. Right. Like that's what he was aiming for. Yeah, where yeah, we, yeah, could, yeah. we could riff off each other. Yeah. We could improvise. We yeah. could create something together. Yeah. So it's such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful example, because it's like uh, you see the interplay of all these elements. Mm. And and so I want to play back, you know, a very very small version of it, you know, that doesn't capture all the richness of it. But yeah. you're 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 showing first the difference between, you know, like in an embedded mode. Uh, That's right. You can't, you know, you, essentially there's no room for you. Uh, and so you make room for you, including what about me? And and you showed the way the what about me, both in a mindful way and a mentalizing way. That's and, right. And the what about me is actually something that goes into the deep wound of if I put myself in, it's inappropriate yeah. or I get reprimanded or I get, you know. Yes. So so there is, um, it's a big step to actually yes. at that moment fight, you know, that heritage of attachment. But what's happening oh. is at that moment you are actually making the ghost of attachment past visible in the room. And your That's mother, right. which was kind of hiding and this, you know, manipulating things, suddenly becomes visible, and you yep. have some action on it. And as yeah. you do that, uh, you are actually in a position where you've overcome that dominance of your past, and you make it possible to actually break free. And instead of both the patient and you being prisoners of your past and the all or nothing or monads. 
Basically, yes. there suddenly is a possibility of human beings in a dialogue or in a jazz improv, and it feels so beautiful, you know, the way all of these things work together. Yeah, that's such a lovely, lovely restatement. And, uh, I mean, it's pretty, maybe it's in the great minds, think alike department, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just found myself thinking about two things that, that I've said often when I teach. You know, one is, for the patient to heal, the therapist must change. Mm-hmm. And and somehow, like, what, what I heard you saying was something about how, like, in the vignette that I just presented, that I kind of lose, I became less a prisoner of my past. Mm-hmm. I changed in that moment. And I think that opened something up in the relationship that made it possible, ultimately, for the patient to begin to change. Yes. So that was one thing. And then the, the other thing that I talk about a lot in my teaching is how in a secure state of mind, a relationship is experienced as a setting in which there's room for two. Yeah. But when we're in an insecure state, a relationship is a context in which there's room for one and one only. And I think, I don't know if the attachment lingo is familiar to you, but... In, in the attachment lingo, we talk about a dismissing state of mind, and that's a kind of a cut-off, sort of obsessive, narcissistic, schizoid kind of state of mind, you might say, quite shut down. Uh, and there, there's only room for the self. Mm-hmm. Or there's this kind of hyper-activated, you know, I don't know, to use some old... Uh, diagnostic jargon, it's kind of more hysteric, emotional uh, state of mind. There's only room for one, but that one is the other. Mm. So I think in a way I was gripped by a sort of preoccupied state of mind in which there was only room for one, and that one was my patient. Mm-hmm. But that, that didn't serve my patient. I couldn't be helpful uh, in that imprisoned state. And so I had to change in order to make something... Uh, new possible in the relationship with the patient. Yeah, yeah. And and again, that's so rich there, but what I think is really important, that part where it's a little different from, say, the part that says therapists must do their, their own work in order to be able to be good therapists. The that's dimension right. that you're saying is not just they must have done their own work and it's done, but that's it right. is happening in the session. Uh, Absolutely. It's not that you had done it in the past, because of course you've done it. But what's beautiful in it is the therapist is changing in the session, in the moment, and yes. that's what is creating the possibility of change. That's I, I certainly see it that way. I mean, for one thing, I don't really subscribe to an image of um, you know healing that is ever complete. Ultimately, I mean, I think our healing is, I think we are, those of us who choose this work, almost all wounded healers with a very problematic past, uh, a more or less problematic past, but problematic. And, and I think, you know, at the work of our healing is lifelong, and we're going to continue to manifest in our intimate relationships with spouses, kids, parents, and others, we're going to continue to manifest some of our woundedness, you might say. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the, but the the uh, key, the important thing is, I think, to be 
as open as possible to an awareness of the manifestations of that woundedness as we work with our patients. And to do a little, to perhaps you might say, to do a little healing on the spot, mm-hmm. which I mm-hmm. think has the potential to open things up, both for the therapist and the, the patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a great place uh, to uh, maybe... <laughs> To wind up. To wind down and just, uh, and that, and that's, uh, you know, it feels like that sense of, you know, both the therapist and the patient are wounded and are engaged in a process of healing. That's right. You know, there's a very uh, well-known uh, writer, analyst in the relational psychoanalytic tradition, a guy named Erwin Hoffman, uh, who recently said something like this. There is a very simple truth. We, therapists, we are the patients. This is really a large self-help group. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.